Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. So, if your kids ask what you learned in church today, just don't tell them you watched cartoons, okay? Uh, no, it's, uh, it's a little silly, obviously, but I mean, these little animated shorts, they always get me. But it ties in so much to what we are talking about today, because there is this reality. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll start with last week. We talked about how uh, we are unable to do everything. Uh, and that at some point, we might have to start saying no to some things in order to be able to pursue or chase after the things that we really are passionate about or excited about. There's other words like called to do or gifted to do, which sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable because those feel like very spiritual, very big words. But, but the reality is, is that we need to figure out how do we, how do we uh, make choices that allow us to take care of what we need to take care of. You know, we've got we've to do the job. We've got to pay for rent. We've got to make sure we take care of our responsibilities. And most of us have a lunch break. Uh, and, and there is this other aspect of what can I do to chase after the things that I'm passionate about, that excite me, that make me enjoy living, that make me feel fully alive, that make, maybe are the things that God wants to use in my life to serve, care for, support, cheer on other people. Last week we said one of the big ideas was we are often so busy doing the things that we have to do that we don't even get to think about the things that we want to do. And so I want to talk about this today, and in the time that I have, I want to just talk about this reality, because getting the most out of our lives, getting the most out of your life, it's not about doing everything. It's not about cramming everything into this one tiny little space, this one little small, limited amount of time. It's about going big on the right things. And when I say the right things, I'm not just talking about like the morally right things, although yes, do those. I mean like the right things that actually help us come alive, the, the right things that stir something inside of us that make us excited about life, that make, make us excited about maybe uh, your marriage or your kids or your job or your free time or your resources or what you are passionate about or what you've learned about, the things that cause us to, to flourish in life. This is what we're talking about today. It's not about doing everything, but going big on the right things. Uh, in New Year's, uh, in, the, in the new year, there's a lot of people that kind of say like, hey, here's what's in and here's what's out for the coming year. And so I broke it down this way and I want us to think about it this way. Uh, the first thing is what is out is asking ourselves, what do I have to give up? Because that's never a fun question to ask yourself. What's it going to cost me? What do I have to stop doing? What do I have to give up? What do I have to give up to, in order to do these things? And I want us to start asking the question in this way, what do I want to go big on? What is the thing that is exciting to me? What is the thing that's, that I feel stirring inside of me that I want to chase after? Last week uh, in the message, I teased a couple times that there are two things that I want to be able to chase after this year, two things that are really important to me. Do you guys remember what those were? You didn't tell us. I didn't tell you. That's exactly right. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you one of them today. Uh, one of the things, and, and I don't have time to, to get into all of it, but one of the things that... Um, I've decided that I'm going to start doing this year is that I am going to uh, be intentional 
about carving out one morning a week to have breakfast with my older son. He's 12, he's almost 13, and I'm going to do this until he graduates high school, which is a long time. Ideally, hopefully, five and a half years, but I mean, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, it's a really big thing. It's, it's kind of terrifying, and I feel like there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. I cannot plan a week ahead, let alone five years ahead. And so to do this, the reality is, is that he and I, neither of which love getting up in the mornings, have to wake up early at least one day a week. There's one day I'm going to carve out time, and we're going to get up at 5, 5.30. We're going to go get breakfast, and, and we're probably going to be asleep through half of it. But, but there is this reality, and, and the thought, the pain of getting up early once a week and that early once a week to do this thing, which is not required of me, is a lot. The thought of what do I have to give up to do this is a little bit overwhelming and discouraging at times. The likelihood that we're going to miss a week, the likelihood that it's going to be difficult, that sometimes we're going to fight that sometimes it's going to be like, man, I'm spending a lot of money on these breakfasts, uh, all, of the, all of the things that I've got to give up. But the thought of what do I want to go big on, the thought of what would it look like for me to say once a week I'm going to have breakfast with my son for the next six years and the implications that that might have on the rest of his life. Bizarrely enough, in the first service, I met someone, she was down here visiting her mom, and she said that her dad did the same thing with her and her brothers. She's now in her 30s, and she was able to talk about how impactful that was, which was just like a huge gift to me. But there's a big difference between what do I have to give up to do this early morning breakfast once a week, and what do I want to go big on? It's worth giving up these things. I want to help him. I want to build a close relationship and maintain one, but I also want to help him as he transitions into teenage years. And then into adulthood, and, and I want there to be an, an opportunity for this journey for him. And it's overwhelming to think about doing it and what I have to sacrifice in order to do it, but when I think about what I want to go big on, why wouldn't that be at the top of my list? Why wouldn't that be in the top three or four things that I want to do with my time as a husband and as a dad? And so we all have these things that we are passionate about, that we are excited about, but the reality is like the animated film that our brain is like, man, that's going to take a lot of time, or that's going to take a lot of energy, or it's dangerous, you might die, get eaten by a shark, whatever it might be. There's these things that kind of compete against these passions, interests, desires, goals. And so we end up just being like, you know what? If I can pay my rent every month, that's good enough. You know what? If my kids stay alive, that's good. And it is. Well, let me just be clear. It's good to keep your kids alive. <laughs> But we just kind of settle to the lowest common denominator so that we can function. And I really believe that God wants us to do more than function. He wants us to do more than survive. He wants us to do more than just make it. And whether you are 10 or 20 or 40 or 60 or 70 or 80, there are years in your life that God would love to fill with excitement and passion and opportunities it is never too early and it is never too late to start moving at these things. And so this is what we're talking about today. We understand the idea of, man, yes, let's find a passion, let's move at it, let's go towards it, let's accomplish it. But how do I figure out what that thing is? Because I'm excited about a lot of things. 
I'm passionate about a lot of things. And so how do I figure out what is my thing? What is the one thing that I want to do? I was a college pastor for a number of years, uh, worked with a lot of young adults. They were in college or recently graduating from college. And I was also in that same stage. So not at a great place to tell them what to do with their lives. But I, fit, uh, I faked it. Uh, I faked it till I maked it. That's not how that goes. Um, but I had a lot of great mentors. And one of them told me this really powerful thing from my life. And I was able to share that with others. Because the question and the fear of every like college age, young adult person is, how do I know what God wants me to do? What is God's will for my life? And the message behind that is that in all of the world, there is one specific target that I have to hit in order to experience God's goodness. In order for me to accomplish the things or achieve the things that God wants me to do, it, can, it must just be this one target. And so there is a ton of stress and anxiety and fear about, well, what if I miss it? What if I don't even know that it's there? Or what if I know that it's there and I aim, but I'm kind of off target? And this, this message kind of comes along with that, which is it's really possible, maybe it's really likely that somehow I'm going to screw it up, that somehow I'm going to miss out on this one thing and I will forever be discouraged or sad or depressed and God will be disappointed because I didn't do the one thing. Let's pray. No, um... <laughs> And what I was told and what I shared when I was a college pastor and what is never too late for us to hear is that God did give each of us very, very specific callings, very specific, but they are also incredibly broad. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus replies to a man, he says, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is... God's will for you. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is God's will for your life. Love God with all of your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can slice those things a thousand different ways. You can accomplish those things a thousand different ways. This is, this is the lens. These are the glasses that you look through in your career, in your hobbies, in your schooling, in your retirement, in your whatever it might be. Am I accomplishing God's will via loving him with everything that I have and, and loving my neighbor as best as I can? Then the rest of it is the playground. It's the sandbox that I get to live in. The rest of it is me making choices and making decisions and saying, no, I'm going to take my life into my hands, understanding that God is my heavenly father and he's called me to do some very specific things in an incredibly broad way. There's a lot of great ideas. There's a lot of great passions, a lot of great thoughts, but God created you specifically in a specific way. He wants you to accomplish some incredible things. And it's not incredible as the world says. It's incredible as he has shaped you in a specific way. It doesn't have to be an office in the C-suite and some sort of massive retirement plan. It doesn't have to be a world traveler and I'm an Instagram influencer and all that, although I am. Just kidding. Uh, no, I am just influenced on Instagram is all that I am. Uh, it doesn't have to look this certain way but God has created you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
And the Greek word there is actually the word poema, which is this idea of this beautiful poem, this creativity that our Heavenly Father had this artistic ability to make you. And he made you like an artist makes a painting, no two alike, with intentionality and beauty and meaning and purpose. And each of us has something inside of us that nobody has. And I don't mean this in like you're a beautiful snowflake kind of way, but you are a beautiful snowflake. <laughs> you have something inside of you that no one else has, and it is a gift to the people around you. And God loves it. God loves looking at you and watching you navigate your life and using your uniqueness to influence and interact with people and things and experiences. So what's the difference between a good idea and a calling? A good idea is something that you would like to do. Well, a calling is something that you have to do. A good idea can be implemented by almost anyone. But a calling is something that is specifically for you to pursue. It is a good idea for there to be a man that pours into my 12-year-old's life. That's not really just meant for anyone to do it. I should do that. I'm called to do that as his dad. I get to step into that space. And it doesn't mean that there's not other ones that are incredibly helpful and encouraging and informative and life-altering for him. That's something that I can't hand off. I need to do that. I need to chase after that. One of the ways we can begin to kind of navigate and, and narrow down the difference between a good idea or a calling is, uh, well, it's a, I got a visual for it. There's a Venn diagram I want to show you guys. Each of us has things that we are passionate about. We are excited, interested, kind of naturally just like lean into these things. We also all have different relationships or networks of people. Uh, maybe it's the family, friends, uh, marriage, spouse, coworkers. Maybe it's, you know what, I was born into a family of lawyers and everyone that we know is lawyers and, and lawyering is the thing that I know what to do and I'm going to chase after that. Gifts. We have natural gifts. You might be passionate about something and also not gifted at it. A lot of you guys are very passionate about sports, and none of you are gifted. I'm just kidding. There's a reason why there's so many fantasy football teams and so few real-life football teams. We have gifts, and then we also each have our story, and our story is shaped by our lives. Our story is shaped and informed by our parents, our family, our friends, some teachers that you had in school, the first boss that you ever had to report to, the illnesses or the health that you've navigated these things all shape our story. So there's these four different components of who we are and it, where they section in the middle, where they cross over in the middle, oftentimes, not always, it's not an equation, but that usually ends up being, man, I'm passionate about this thing. I'm gifted in this way. I have connections that help me understand what this looks like. And this is a part of my story. And all of a sudden it's like, man, why wouldn't I do this? I can't not do this. I think that's right double negative. There's this deep sense of like, man, this is the thing. So maybe this is a framework that can help you. It takes time to work through this, and, and I'm happy to talk more about it. We don't have all of that time today, but it still offers us questions. And knowing the right questions to ask doesn't always make them easy to answer. Nehemiah spent time exploring this passion, this calling, this tugging on his heart. He was the cupbearer for a king. And he found out that his home had been destroyed. The, 
The city walls had been torn down. The gates had been burnt. And he was devastated and mourning and grieved about the loss of something that was so important to him. And he had this thing start to grow inside of him that said, hey, cupbearer who has no power or influence or wealth, hey, cupbearer, you should, you should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. You should rebuild the walls and the gates of this city that you love. It had nothing to do with what his job skills were. It had nothing to do with how successful he was. It wasn't because he was rich and had the freedom to do whatever he wanted. He just felt this passion. And so he asked the king, can I do this thing? And the king said, yes. So he travels 900 miles back to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 2. It says, so I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate. You guys know where all those things are, right? Uh, in order to, next slide, inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. I then went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. Very detailed. So, though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, nobles, and officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. Now there's a lot. There's a lot of verses we just read. And what we see here is this reality where Nehemiah finally gets to Jerusalem and then on his own with a couple trusted people, he goes out and he inspects the wall. He explores. He looks at what's happening and, and he hasn't told anybody the thought or the idea that he has. He's kept it inside. And let me just tell you, this idea that I had that I'm rolling out now with my son, uh, I had the idea for about six months before I told even my wife. And it's not like it's an embarrassing idea but it's really terrifying to say something out loud. All of a sudden, now I'm accountable for this idea. Now there's some sort of weight, some sort of responsibility. He hasn't told anybody yet. So he explores, he looks around, he sees where things are at. He travels around the entire city and looks at all of the wall. Then he shares this idea and he tells the people, the hand of God is on me. And I don't know that he's saying, I now have all of the knowledge of how to rebuild a city. I think what he's saying is, I have to do this, and I am committed to doing this. Will you join me? And they are thrilled to jump in. They say yes. They say yes. So good for him. Great for Nehemiah. These Bible people, they always seem to get it right. But what about me? What about you? <clears throat> I actually have to pay the bills. 
I actually have to care for my family. I actually have to handle these responsibilities. I actually have to get these grades to make it through these courses to, what about, what about me? Um, there is a uh, author named Greg McCown, and he wrote a book called Essentialism. It's a really incredible book about this idea of how do we focus on the most crucial things in our life. If we want to see forward progress, if we want to experience flourishing in our lives, if we want to experience joy in the way we spend our time, what does that look like? Um, it's a really great book. And he has these five things that he says that we have to be able to do, that we need to prioritize in our own lives in order to pursue experience, uh, in order to experience this full flourishing in our lives. And I want to take just a few minutes to look at these five things that he says. The first one, <clears throat> excuse me, if only there was some water up here that I could drink. <clears throat> just kidding. Um, the first one is that he says that we should escape. Set aside some time in a distraction-free space to reflect. And I can already feel you dozing off and rolling your eyes. Time, escape, distraction-free, yeah, right, maybe 2025. Uh, but there is this reality for us, which we need to begin embracing. This isn't a one-time thing. This isn't about this moment or this season in your life. This is about a rhythm of health in your life. And escaping looks a lot of different ways. Distraction-free looks a lot of different ways. I don't want to tell you it has to look a certain way. But for some people, maybe it's once a year going away by themselves. Maybe it's just one day. Maybe you go overnight. Maybe it's with, I don't know, it can be like a once a year type of thing. For other people, maybe there's a quarterly kind of, uh, I'm going to spend a day and I'm not going to use any technology on that day. I'm going to not be distracted. I'm just going to take one Saturday and just be fully un... Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wait, I didn't see. Did this come from the baptismal? I mean, I love you guys, but... Ed, everybody, just the best. So maybe it's quarterly. Maybe it's taking some time each quarter and saying, hey, I'm going to take uh, a few hours or a day and I'm just going to unplug. Maybe it's weekly, which seems crazy. But maybe once a week, you could take 30 minutes and just literally turn everything off and hide from your kids. <laughs> maybe it's uh, during a lunch hour at your job, and instead of just mindlessly scrolling, you actually just go sit outside somewhere and shut everything off because you legally have one hour to yourself in that moment. It could look a lot of different ways, but it's so crucial that we find this. Nehemiah did this. He took time, he escaped in the middle of the night, looked at the wall, took a few people with him to, to observe, to, to look, to experience, to see what's happening. Jesus did this in his own life. Over and over again, we see him kind of pulling away. In Luke 5, it says, Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. There's another passage in the scripture where it says, Jesus was surrounded by people wanting to be healed, and he said, I've got to go to the next town. Jesus didn't even heal the people that wanted to be healed. He, he healed some of them, and then he just left others hanging, essentially. But he understood that there is this need for me to have space. There's this need for me to communicate with my heavenly father. There's this need for me to, to move away from the distraction of other people. And it's good to do that. And so what would that look for you? to implement this, not as a, okay, I'm going to do that one time, but some sort of rhythm to escape. The second thing is to look. 
Look, this is the process of investigating opportunities and becoming more self-aware. So this might be that Venn diagram of, okay, I'm going to take some time and I'm going to write down some of my passions and some of my gifts and, and what are the things in my story that uh, have really shaped me or are exciting to me? What are the things, what are the relationships that I have? Um, Greg McCown says, you should be a journalist in your own life. Like look into, be curious, ask questions, uh, spark wonder. What is it that I don't know about this job? that I've been in for 30 years? What is it that I don't know about my child who it feels like I never have a break from? What does it look like for us to begin asking questions, to become curious? What we think something is and what it actually is can be quite different. I know a lot of people that got really expensive college degrees in a job field, and then they started working in that field, and they were like, yeah, I don't want to do this. I know a lot of people that have spent a lot of time pursuing something that seems like a good idea, but when they get into it, it's very different than the reality. What something looks like it is is often different, so we have to be intentional. Again, Nehemiah did this. He knew that the wall had been destroyed, the gates had been burned down, but he also wanted to go and look for himself to see what it was, and he did that before he told anybody that he was going to help them rebuild it. He's like, well, let me check it out first before I say this out loud. Let me go look and see and so what would it look like for you to keep a journal, to write down observations about yourself or others, to volunteer somewhere, to take a class, to read up on a subject? I, um, I read two books last year. Hold the applause. Uh, no, I read more than two books. But I read two books last year that specifically had to do with what it, look, what it might look like for me to pour into uh, my relationship with my son this week. There was two books that I read about this topic, and I can't do everything that they said. I'm not wired in all of the ways that those authors are, but I, I explored and I learned before I stepped into this journey. The third one is play. This is anything that we do simply for the joy of doing it rather than a means to an end. This is what we do because we love it, because it's fun, because it's enjoyable. And this is what everybody wants to do, right? But we can't because... I've got a job. This is the story of the guy in the cartoon that we saw who had all of these things that he wanted. But logic alone told him that he should just do these very specific things and don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. The idea of play is something that kind of feels ridiculous for us. I'm an adult. I'm a grown-up. I've got responsibilities. I can't be selfish and play. But there is so much benefit that comes for us when we enter a state of play. And actually, this one and sleep, which we're going to look at in just a second, both of these are things that continue to show up more and more in studies about human health and flourishing. Because these are two things that we continue to push away more and more. And they actually are crucial to us. There's an expansion of awareness that happens when we enter into a state of play because it's just for fun. There's no implications on my job in whether or not I'm successful as a painter. Unless your job's a painter, you know. Uh, a number of years ago, I started cooking a lot. And it was so fun. And I love cooking new recipes. And, and then I started creating these other dinners where we would invite people over. And they had no idea what I was going to make. And, and I would make these things. And, 
and it was mostly fun, a little bit terrifying, but it was a lot of fun overall, you know, and, and there was this thing that that brought, it cost me money, it did nothing for my job, but I loved it. I came alive in a way that I hadn't in a long time. It's so crucial that we do this, that we take time to play. The fourth word is sleep. All the scientific research continues to tell us that we as humans, which as far as I know, as most of us, need eight hours of sleep every night to be at our best. Now, I recognize that there are some infants and newborns in the room. I recognize that some of you are in a season where you are working overnighters or you're, you got different things going on, and there's times when we're unable to do that. But for a lot of us, we've just kind of gotten in a habit of not prioritizing our sleep. There's actually, uh, for me, there's times that I don't go to sleep. I want to sleep so bad. I am so tired. But I have had not one minute to myself the whole day. And so I say, no, I'm going to stay up for four hours watching Netflix instead. <laughs> because in some world in my own mind, I think that that's going to be the thing that helps me. And I wake up the next day more exhausted than I was before. So for some of us, it's just bad habits. For some of you, there's other challenges that come into the ability to sleep. My wife, okay, let me just, I can go to sleep in about 30 seconds anyway. <laughs> Any time of day, I'll, I'll do it. My wife is not that way. In a very bizarre turn of events, the other night, I was having a hard time sleeping. And by that, I mean it was like two minutes since I had laid down and I was still awake. <laughs> and I looked over at my wife, and she was laying like an android that was recharging. It was the weirdest thing. And I literally was like, are you okay? And she jerked her head towards me and was like, oh my God, you're still awake? Like it was a moment of absolute shock. And I was like, what are you doing? And she said, I do this every night. Like, what? <laughs> like some sort of seance after I go to bed. My wife has a really hard time going to sleep. It takes her a long time. And so she has read these different books and resources. And she has these, this routine that she does. And it helps her go to sleep. She imagines somebody tracing the outline of her body in bed, which feels a little creepy saying it on stage now. But, but she has taken the steps to say, hey, I can't sleep even when I want to. And so what does it look like for me to learn, to find healthy rhythms, healthy tools for me to be able to sleep? Here's something that's crazy to me. In a Harvard study called Sleep Deficit, the Performance Killer, which is a great name, uh, it was discovered that pulling an all-nighter or sleeping four to five hours a night for one week induces an impairment equivalent to a blood alcohol content level of 0.1%, which is enough to get you arrested for a DUI in California. Sleeping four to five hours a night for a week reduces your capacity to make healthy choices, to make the right decisions, to see things clearly, to act quickly. This is not just a nice to. And I know many of you guys are like, I can survive off four or five hours a week. Absolutely. But do you just want to survive or do you want to live? Do you want to survive or do you want to thrive? Do you want to survive and make it or do you actually want to figure out how can I experience a good, beautiful life? And so there's a, a challenge for us to say, hey, this is an important thing. And as selfish as it seems, 
I need to figure out how to prioritize this in my life. And then the last one is select. You have to pick a lane at some point. Is this something that you're going to do? Is this something I'm going to pursue? Uh, I've got two boys. My older one is the one that I'm hanging out with for breakfast once a week. I see him more than that also, but, you know. Uh, and then my younger one is um, terrified by any decision in life. It's like, gosh, I can have chicken nuggets or corn dogs for dinner? I don't know. Uh, do you have a whiteboard? i got to make a pros and cons list. If I have chicken nuggets, I can have uh, ketchup. If I have corn dogs, do I want mustard? Just kidding, he never wants mustard. Um, he literally, like, he is absolutely overwhelmed by the options. And a lot of us are the same. A lot of us have so many options that it's like, man, I'm not going to make any of them because they all seem like they could be good. And what if I pick the wrong one and I fail? What if I pick the wrong one and it doesn't go the right way? This time with my older son, there was a bunch of different ways that I could have scheduled it. And I was terrified to pick the wrong one because it has to work the first time forever, right? Is what we think. We get so scared by this, but we have to pick a lane. There's an author and speaker named Bob Goff, and he says this. He says, I used to be afraid of failing at something that really mattered to me. But now I'm more afraid of succeeding at things that don't. And I think the reality for us is that we are really successful at a lot of things that may not be the big things or the best things. And the things that really would cause us to come alive, to be excited about life, to chase after new opportunities, to, to be the people that God has created us and called us to be is because we're afraid that we might get it wrong, that we might fail. And so we just never do it at all. Last week, I told you guys that there's two things that I'm prioritizing this year. I've already told you one this morning. The second one, I'm still not going to tell you. <laughs> but I will tell you, I haven't started on it because I am terrified. I'm terrified. And it's not because if I do it, I'll be a destitute and living on the streets. It's not because if I fail at it, that everyone will leave me and hate me. It's just because it's something that matters to me. It has no greater implications other than if I do it, I will be thrilled. God could use that in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. But it's a scary thing. At some point, we have to stop thinking and we have to decide for this set of time I'm going to put this many dollars into it. I'm going to do it for six months. I'm going to chase after this thing for one year. I'm going to, I don't know what it could be, but we have to make this choice. And what would it look like for you to begin implementing some of these practical steps? Escape, look, play, sleep, and select. And I see some of you dozing off right now. And this is not the time for sleep. Just kidding. Just kidding. What are the things that you feel pulling at your heart, the things that you are excited about, the things that logic tell you no, don't chase after that for your job or for your family or for your passions or your hobbies? What are those things and what would it look like to, to explore those for this year? It's not 
doing everything, but it's going big on the right things. There's a a lot that Nehemiah was looking at as he looked at the city that had been destroyed and burnt out and the gates torn down and he had no building skill. He had no reason to think that he could do any of this. And, but he shared this passion and the people said, we're in, let's rebuild this together. And I think that there was still probably a lot of fear and a lot of terror. If he was even, even anything remotely like me, it would have maybe even been more terrifying because now he's got all these people excited about this thing. In the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 2, he says this, the God of heaven will help us succeed. And I see this as true and also maybe like a little bit of a parachute. Like, yeah, and uh, God's going to help us, right? Yeah, and uh, if it doesn't work out, then God must have failed on his part of things. There's this reality where God has put something inside you and I. He's created you in a certain way. He's given you passion and skills and gifts and family and stories and all these different things. He's inviting you to live this life that is fully alive. And it doesn't mean adding everything to what you're already doing, but it means how do I subtract and focus on the things that are most important? And I believe, and Nehemiah believed, and I want you to believe that God has put the resources that you need in your life already. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about the ability to learn, to lean in, to try, to move at something. And it doesn't mean that it's not scary. But I really believe that God has created each of us for good works. That there is a purpose and a time that we're supposed to step into these things. And that our Heavenly Father is with you cheering you on as you move towards these things that are exciting, these passions, these interests. Let's pray together. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today and I hope that I get to see you soon.